All right, so no fruit gushers this week. Sorry. If you weren't here last week, you missed out on a nice little snack, a uh, nice little treat. But that, uh, the reason, of course, I handed those out was because that is the title of our series, that sticky, chewy candy that many of you had for the first time last week. I got uh, some people who said they loved them, some people that said they never had them before and they were fine if they never had them again. But uh, I guess it depends on, some, some of that depends on your age, right? Um, but uh, I love them. I, you know, I've always had kind of a weakness for chewy candy anyway. But the great thing about Fruit Gushers, that sticky, chewy, gummy candy is that inside is the juice, right? And when you bite into it, it comes flowing out. Uh, and that is, should be a description of us as followers of Christ. As we live our lives, the life of Jesus, which is inside of us, should come flowing out. The character of Christ should be displayed in our lives. And that is where the fruit of the Spirit comes in. And the reason Fruit Gushers is such a great analogy, such a great illustration, and the title of our series is because the reality is the fruit of the Spirit, the theme of our series, flows in us from the presence of the Holy Spirit, and it flows out of us for the advancement of the gospel and the glory of God. This is about authentic Christian living, living for Christ and a world that's fallen, corrupted by sin, but in living in this life, in living for Christ in this life, uh, we have the Holy Spirit's presence within us, we have the fruit in us, but, but we live and it flows out, and in doing so, we are pointing people to Christ. We're advancing the gospel. It is all for the glory of God, and we find our fruit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Let's read those two verses again. We've looked at them each week. And we'll continue to do so. <clears throat> but the fruit of the Spirit, Paul says, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all of those we've talked about, right? Today, we come to goodness, goodness, faith, or faithfulness, which we'll look at next week, gentleness and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Now, a couple of things we remember here. Uh, we just, in terms of review, maybe this is your first week joining us. You can go back and look at all of the, the installments of this series, but I'll give you a quick review. One thing that we need to remember is that the fruit of the Spirit, we cannot cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in our own effort and ability. The Holy Spirit does that. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in our lives, and He cultivates the fruit of the Spirit. Now, that being said, we can't just sit back and expect God to do all the work of cultivating and do nothing. We do have a part in it. It's both and, not either or. We all have a part to play in cultivating this fruit, the fruit, practicing spiritual disciplines, living a godly life. Um, that's how our part in that. And so we've looked at that from, those, from both of those sides throughout this series, and we'll continue to do so. The secret to the flow of spiritual fruit and our unity, God, and our unity with each other, by the way, is yielding to the Holy Spirit, submitting to the Holy Spirit, and abiding in Christ. You know, Jesus talks about that. Uh, the, the vine and the branches, if we abide in him, we will bear much fruit. We have to submit to him. We have to submit to the Spirit, allow the Holy Spirit to work in and through us, and we abide daily with Christ. And then finally, the fruit of the Spirit, we need to understand it as singular, not plural. 
Um, there aren't nine different fruits. It is one fruit of the Spirit with nine different flavors is the way we think about that. And so if you are a child of God, if you are living in submission to the Spirit, abiding in Christ, you will, you will display all of these flavors, not just a select few. And we've talked with each of these. Some, some of us, some of these flavors come more naturally to some of us than others. And we all can identify with different flavors and, and what may be more difficult for us, what may be a little bit more natural, but we're still called to display these. And that's where submission and the Lordship of Christ, having him working in and through us, that's where that comes in. Last week, we talked about kindness. Now, kindness and goodness are very similar. As a matter of fact, uh, in some of the studies that I've done for this, a lot of people just group those two together. Uh, kindness and goodness, and talk about the different characteristics. And certainly we could have done that. Um, they do go together in a lot of ways. You could even say they're a pair, but they are different. There are some differences. And, and this morning we're going to look at, at goodness, what that really means. What is at the heart of goodness? Well, I think one of the keys, one of the first steps is to look at the actual word that's used in Galatians 5, 22, 4, goodness. The Greek word there is agathos, and it has, it's interesting because it has a dual meaning. Uh, if you look at it, there's a dual meaning, and here's, here's what it means. It is a moral and spiritual excellence that is known by its sweetness and active kindness. Do you see the dual meaning there? It's moral and spiritual excellence, but it's also active kindness. So yes, kindness and goodness go together, but goodness carries with it the idea of activity. It's who you are, moral excellence, it's morality, it's integrity, but it's also what you do. And, and that's the case with all of these, but, but goodness especially carries with it the idea that I'm going to display that goodness. I'm going to act on that kindness, and you're going to see it. You're going to experience it if you are in my life because you're, I'm going to show that to you in some way. Um, it, it is that dual meaning. Spiritual goodness is the substance of us being good, but it is also the action of us doing good. It's the substance of us being good, but also the action of us doing good. Um, you know, we, we say, we might say, hey, he's a good guy, or, or she's a good woman, or he's a good kid, or what, whatever. Uh, what are we really saying when we say that? What does that really mean in terms of spiritual goodness? When we, we talk about people, well, one thing, it's, it's integrity. It's this. It is W-Y-S-I-W-Y-G. Write that down. W-Y-S-I-W-Y-G. That's a mouthful. That's why I read it, because I would not have gotten it right. But here's what that means. Are you ready? What you see is what you get. You can check me. Make sure there's a word for a letter for every word. What you see is what you get. That's really integrity, right? It is, I am who I say I am. I'm not putting on airs. I'm not placating. I'm not uh, trying to go for a photo op. You know, we see celebrities do that, right? They, they, they go to the hospital to visit sick kids, and just so happens there's 50 cameras there to, to catch all of it. Not, you know, that may be sincere, but... But that, it's not about publicity. It's not about getting, making a name for myself. It's, it's I'm the same here as I am at home. I'm the same at work as I am at play. Um, I'm the same person. It's integrity. It's I am who I really say I am. And that is the fruit of the Spirit. It's what's on the inside is coming out. 
It's being displayed in my life. And that's certainly the case with goodness. Goodness is close to what it means to be pure in heart. Um, You can depend on good people to do what they say, to be who they say they are, to be consistent in their lives, to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. And that's the reason they want to be like Christ. They want to do what he does, live as he lived. And since there's a flavor of spiritual fruit with all of these, it is a character of who God is. We're going to look specifically at the goodness of God this morning and what that looks like and how that is to be emulated in our lives. One characteristic is that God's goodness overcomes evil. That's one of the great things about the goodness of God. There's a lot of evil in our world. There's a lot of sickness. There's a lot of death. There's a lot of destruction. Um, And God's goodness overcomes Satan's evil. And uh, that's one of the promises, the anchors that we have in life. Now, you've back, I think, in the 90s, this was really popular. I think this originated in churches in Africa, churches that were uh, under persecution. That was the, the best information I could find when I started to look at this. But I, I bet you remember this so well without even me telling you what it is that you can do your part without me prompting you. Are you ready? God is good. And all the time. Yeah. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Because we say it, and we said it in church. I remember growing up, I think, again, I think in the 90s, that was like the thing every Sunday. We would repeat that, you know. That was what we did. And it kind of became cliche to the point to where we say it without thinking about it, but do we really believe that God is good in a world of pandemic, in a world of death, in a world where buildings collapse and kill people? In a world where children get sick and die. I mean, really, do we believe that God is good? I do, okay. I'm just, I think that's something we need to think about. Because God's word is very clear that he is good. And it's clear that his goodness overcomes evil. But I think when we get out into the world with all that we're surrounded by, if we're honest with ourselves, it's hard to believe that sometimes. I mean, let's be honest. Has there ever been a point in your life where you've struggled with the goodness of God? grieving, hurting, being sick, whatever the case may be. I I know I have, but that doesn't mean it's not true. And and that's what we have to come back to is the truth of who God is and and what his nature. And part of his nature is that he is truly good. The Bible affirms this. Look at Psalm 136, verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord. Why? For he is good. His love is eternal. One of the reasons he is good is because his love is perfect and it is eternal. There's never been a time where he didn't love you, and there will never be a time where he does not love you. Psalm 119.68, you are good, and you do what is good. It's his nature. Teach me your statutes. If I want to be good, I got to be like God. God, you got to show me how to be good. You got to teach me to be good. And when Moses asked God to show him his glory, God replied by saying this in Exodus 33.19. He said, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you. We talked about, you know, the goodness, the love, the mercy, the, the grace of God is, is closely associated in several points in Scripture with His holiness, His righteousness, His justice, because it's just who He is. And, and in some ways, that may seem like a contradiction to us, but it doesn't mean that it's not true. It's who God is. He said, I will, in response, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you, Moses, and I will proclaim the name Yahweh before you. I will be gracious to whom I am gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. That had to have been an incredible experience for Moses. He just got a glimpse of the glory of God, and he was never the same afterwards. 
had to be an incredible experience, and we see that in, in, in the song, one of the songs he composed, Moses did. He multiplied words to describe God's goodness. Deuteronomy 32.4, the rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are entirely just. A faithful God without prejudice, he is righteous and true. And those are all characteristics of the goodness of God. I mean, he's perfect. He is just. He is faithful without prejudice. He is righteous and true in everything that he does. So to say that God is good, here's what that means. It means that he is generous. He is trustworthy without any deception or crookedness. Uh, he, and he, he, is, he is like that always. I mean, he's consistent. He is, he is uh, integrity defined. I mean, it is who he is without deception. Um, the goodness of God is affirmed in the Bible, and it is foundational to what we believe and know about God. It is foundational to who he is, everything that we know. Because listen, anytime he shows us who he is or reveals himself to us, that's an example of his goodness because we don't deserve that. It is out of his goodness and his love and his mercy, which are characteristics of his goodness, that he reveals himself, that he draws us to himself. It is foundational. No matter what the circumstances are or appear to be, God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. Even when the world is bad, God is good. Even when bad things happen, God can overrule that and bring good out of that bad thing. That's why Joseph said this in Genesis 50, verse 20, talking to his brothers, you planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result. Now, listen, that doesn't mean that, that uh, the survival of many people, he said. That doesn't mean that bad things that happen to people somehow aren't evil anymore. It doesn't take away the evil that is in those bad things because, hey, in the end, it's all going to be okay. I mean, that, that's not what that means. It's not negating evil. It's not saying that evil no longer exists because God can make it good. What it is saying is that in the midst of evil circumstances, a result of evil circumstances, God can take those things and he can bring good out of them. You know, Joseph, his brothers sold him into slavery. That was evil, plain and simple. And they meant it for evil and they accomplished their goal for the time being. It was bad. And Joseph saying that to his brothers, he's not saying, hey, listen, what you did, it wasn't that bad. No, what you did was bad. You meant it for evil. It was evil. It's just God meant it for good. And he used it in the end to save people's lives. And that, what this is saying is that God can take evil that people either intend or actually do like his brothers did, and he can bring good out of that. He can take what we intend for bad, and that's one of the ways that God overcomes evil with his goodness. His goodness overcomes evil. Second, God's goodness endures, even in the face of difficult. Hey, I'll, I'll change that word. Even in the face of what we think are impossible circumstances, God's goodness endures. Because we face difficult and sometimes seems like impossible but what's impossible with man is possible with God. And that's, that's his goodness, that, that he gives us the ability to overcome that. He overcomes. Daniel's a perfect example of this, right? I mean, think about it. Daniel was serving in a pagan land in a very corrupt time for pagan leaders. I mean, he, he served 
uh, under the government in Babylon, later Persia, and his daily life, work at the office. He was in a secular job, but he was a man of God. But his daily life, he had a spirit of excellence, the scripture tells us, excellence. His enemies could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt or negligent. Daniel 6, 2 and 3 tells us this. It's a pretty amazing description when you think about his work environment, when you think about the fact that he was surrounded by corruption, surrounded by evil. Daniel was a man who could be trusted at work. And, and again, it wasn't Christian. I mean, he was a, this was a secular position, but he was a man of God and he could be trusted. He was a man of integrity. Um, his boss could trust him. Those working under him could trust him. Everybody around him could trust him. He was a man of integrity, and it was evident. But here's the thing. Sometimes when you are good, when you do the right thing, and other people want to do the wrong thing, you're going to make them mad. And that's what happened with Daniel. There were some people in the government that wanted to advance themselves, that wanted to get wealthy. They had other goals. They had dreams beyond what they were doing. And so Daniel, in all of his goodness, his righteousness, his integrity, they didn't like him. And so they wanted to get rid of him. So they came up with this great plan. They came up with this idea that they would have, they would convince the king to pass a decree that no one could pray to any other God except the king himself for a period of time. Now, see, Daniel, he had this practice. Every day he would pray to the God of Israel. That's who he was. He was a man of God. He did it every day. These guys couldn't find anything to accuse him of in terms of his daily life or his work because he was a man of righteousness, a man of integrity, upright in what he did. So they, they zeroed in on what he did in terms of his relationship with God and, and attempted to exploit that. And as a matter of fact, they did. So for a month, the king, you know, he, they play on his vanity. The king agrees to it. Hey, wouldn't it be great for everybody to pray to me for a month? So he passes this decree. So now Daniel has a choice to make. Will he continue to pray to God every day as he has for his entire life? And we see from the beginning of the book of Daniel, he and his few friends were, were groomed to do this. They started early in developing these spiritual disciplines and being faithful. So would he continue to do this at risk to himself, even maybe possibly losing his life? Or would he just say, all right, I'm just going to pretend to pray to the king and so that I don't get into trouble? He had a decision to make. Would he continue to do what he knew was right at risk to himself, his life, or would he compromise? Well, he chose to do what was right in the sight of God. And he continued in his daily prayer. And those who were, were attempting to trap him, they thought, we've got him. They go to the king, and the king doesn't want to do it, but he has no choice. Because if, if he doesn't punish Daniel, then he's compromising himself as king. So he has Daniel thrown into the den of lions. And you, if you've heard the story, you know that God protected Daniel. And those that, that uh, accused him, tricked him, ended up getting the worst of it in the end. But God protected him. But that, he, Daniel didn't know that was going to happen. All right? He had to make a decision. Am I going to do what's right even if it puts me at risk? Daniel was an old man, but he already had the habit of doing what's right. And listen, you know, we need the strength of God. The Holy Spirit has to cultivate it. That has to happen. But we have to be in the habit of doing these things, spiritual disciplines, doing right, doing good, even if it costs us, it shows another 
strong element of biblical goodness here. Biblical goodness involves being committed to doing the right thing even in the face, in the face of incredible obstacles, even when it costs or it hurts. You know, pandemics are nothing new to the church. Matter of fact, the early church in the second century in Rome, there was a pandemic that lasted 15 years. Lord help us, <laughs> right? 15 years. They believe, medical historians believe it was actually the first occurrence of smallpox. They're not sure, but the symptoms from recorded history, they believe it was the first occurrence of smallpox. And you can imagine uh, the medicine of the day. I mean, it knocked out an estimated one-third of the Roman population, this pandemic did. And when this was at its worst, people fled Rome in droves. People ran away from Rome, except the early church. They stayed in Rome, and they took care of the sick. They say that lives were saved simply because they just offered them some simple medical attention that they were not, that people were just throwing them out in the streets to die if they showed symptoms of this, this plague, this pandemic. But the early church went in at great risk to themselves, and they took care of the sick when everybody, the sick when everybody else was running away. Many believe that was the turning point in the, the growth of Christianity in the early church because they went where nobody else would go. They were willing to do good even when it cost them. And that's what goodness is. Good people are those who resist the temptation to take the easy way out of a tough situation. And there are plenty of opportunities, you know, even when it's difficult, even when it's dangerous. Now, I'm not saying, you know, run headlong into danger just because you want, you know, to go out with a blaze of glory. But there are times, like with Daniel, when God calls us to step out in faith, and we've got to be willing to, we've got a question to ask. Are we willing to do what's right, even if it, there's a risk? That the, those who are good persevere in doing what they know to be right, no matter the consequences. And for that reason, good people are usually courageous people. They probably wouldn't say they were courageous, but they end up being courageous because they're operating in the Spirit by the power of God. Whatever the circumstances, we do good to show the mercy of Christ and to share the gospel. That's the purpose. It's not glory for myself. It's not recognition for myself. It's not going out in a blaze of glory. It is, I want to advance the gospel. I want to point people to Jesus Christ. A good person is a righteous person, a person of integrity, someone who responds to the law of grace and salvation of God by living in line with God's will, advancing his kingdom and doing what is right in God's eyes, taking on the character of Christ, becoming more like him daily. And they do it out of a grateful response to God's blessing. Look at Psalm 15, verses 1 through 5. Lord, who can dwell in your tent? Who can live on your holy mountain? The one who lives honestly practices righteousness and acknowledges the truth in his heart. Those are all characteristics of a good person, spiritually good, who does not slander with his tongue, who does not harm his friend or discredit his neighbor, who despises the one rejected by the Lord, but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his word whatever the cost, who does not lend his money at interest or take a bribe against the innocent. The one who does, not, the one who does these things will never be moved. So a good man or a good woman, you know, whatever, good kid, whatever, a good person resists the temptation to find some way out, some easy way out, whether it's keeping a promise or doing the right thing in the face of difficulty. You, there's nearly always an easy option, an easy out when we're faced with a difficult decision. And, and we see that, that, that the good choice is the right choice 
And that the good person is going to take that right choice, even if it's risky. Jesus exemplified this. Let's just look at a few examples of when Jesus could have taken the easy way out. The many times he was offered an alternative or when he faced the choice of taking a different route than the one that led to the cross. Let's just look at a few. Satan tempted him three times to take an easier path through popularity, spectacular death-defying stunts, right? Political power. But Jesus' response was that he resisted and took the path of the suffering servant, the obedient son, the one that God affirmed, the God the Father affirmed at his baptism. Jesus didn't take the easy way out. Simon Peter tried to deflect Jesus away from the whole idea of suffering and crucifixion. And what did he do? Jesus rebuked him because he knew that was the path that God the Father had for him. His mother, his own mother and brothers tried to talk him into leaving that foolishness and coming home. You know, the public ministry, the embarrassment that they perceived uh, and probably experienced in themselves. But Jesus responded by saying my, that his true mother and brothers were, and sisters were those who did the will of the Father. He refused to take the easy way out. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we see him desperately pleading, wanting any other option. God the Father, if it, if it be your will, let this cup pass for me. Any other option. But God affirmed his will that there was no other way, and Jesus chose to follow the Father's will at great cost to himself. When they arrested him, he could have called in a legion of angels to release him, but he chose to follow the path to the cross. Even Pontius Pilate dangled in front of Jesus the possibility of release. But Jesus, staring at the cross, knowing what was ahead, refused to take advantage of that. So through all these temptations, these diversions, Jesus demonstrated goodness through his integrity, his determination to do what was right, even at great cost, at great suffering that he would have to experience and to do the will of the Father. He was, as Paul said in Philippians 2, 8, obedient to death. So God's goodness is a part of who he is. It, it endures even in the face of difficult circumstances. Goodness overcomes evil even in the face of difficult circumstances. And the next thing we need to understand is that God's goodness is a matter of the heart. What's on the inside comes out. Now, I've got a couple of bananas this morning. I left them back there, so Mandy had to get them for me. <laughs> Don't drop them. I'm not done with them yet. Okay. These, this is not, you know, these aren't bruises. I had uh, my two youngest, Annie and Eli, decorate these. All right? You've got, <laughs> Eli drew this. Okay? So if anybody's wondering, Eli drew this. And he just, they colored on them different, I took markers, and I said, you guys go to town, all right? Uh, let's see, Annie, this is Annie's, all right? She's got, she just wrote a bunch of fruits on there, Straw, watermelon, orange, she drew hearts, and drew, Eli just drew different colors, and you know, I think they're pretty neat, I mean, because my kids did them, right? Now I have the, the right to do that. But you look at these bananas, and you think, okay, I'm not, when I'm looking at this, especially as a parent, I'm going, I'm looking at this and looking at what they drew. I'm not thinking about eating this because I'm looking at the drawing. The drawing distracts from 
what's actually on the inside. And, and listen, if all there was was the peel, who wants to eat that? If you do, I want to meet you because you've got to be an interesting person. <laughs> all right. Or there's something seriously wrong with you one way or the other. I still want to meet you because, you know, I'm curious. But the drawing specifically distracts from what's on the inside. And if all I ever did, and they knew I was going to do this, if all I ever did was look at the drawing, I would never experience the goodness of what's on the inside. And there is, I'm not going to eat in front of you guys again today, okay? I've already gotten in trouble for that. But, I mean, there's, a, there's an entire inside here. This banana, the sweetness is on the inside, right? If I never get past the outside, I'll never experience the goodness that's on the inside. But see, here's the thing. As believers, what's on the outside should absolutely match what's on the inside. It should not be. These are great. There's nothing wrong with these drawings. Fantastic. But in life, it shouldn't be that way. What we display on the outside should not be a distraction from what's on the inside. People shouldn't be surprised when they find out what's really on the inside. On the inside should be sweetness. It should be goodness. But it should also be evident on the outside. Now, I will let my wife eat in front of you guys. Would you like a banana? Yeah. Or do something with it. I should have brought a towel up here. Will you hand me a tissue? I didn't realize I was going to make a mess up here. Our goodness should be evident. God's goodness is a matter of the heart, but what's on the heart, what's in the heart, listen, not only should it come out, what's in your heart will come out. And if it's not the goodness of God, eventually that's going to be evident. Eventually people are going to see that. Goodness comes from the life of God within us. It is the Holy Spirit, his presence within us. It's the Holy Spirit cultivating goodness within us. Goodness is a heart thing. It comes from the inside. What we are on the outside is fruit. And, and you know, Jesus taught this. It, the fruit shows what type of tree is there. It's the nature of the tree itself. He makes this point very clear in Luke chapter 6. He says a good tree doesn't produce bad fruit. On the other hand, a bad tree doesn't produce good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs aren't gathered from thorn bushes and grapes picked from a bramble bush. A good man produces good out of the good storeroom of his heart. An evil man produces evil out of the evil storeroom. For his mouth speaks from the overflow of his heart. So what we do shows what we are. I mean, what's on the inside is eventually going to come out. Our actions on the outside show what or rather who is on the inside. So if Jesus, the Holy Spirit, is living within us and he's cultivating the fruit and we're doing our part to cultivate the fruit, specific flavor, all of the fruit, then that's what's going to come out. I mean, it's what we say we believe, who we say we are as followers of Christ will be shown in our actions. What's on the inside, our character, the character of Jesus, the way we speak, the way we treat others, the things that we do, the way we spend our time, the things that we watch, the things that we read, the things that we listen to. I mean, all of that, there's none of us are perfect, okay? And none of us ever will be in this life. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to have weaknesses. We're going to have things that we struggle with. But overall, the consistent display of character in our life will match what we say, or better yet, who we say we are. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching his disciples, okay? Now think about a disciple. A disciple, what is a disciple? A disciple is someone who has 
heard the message of salvation. The Holy Spirit's brought that person under conviction. They've accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. And now begins, they've been, they've been made right with God. They've been justified by faith. Now begins the process of sanctification, right? That's the, that's the beginning of a lifelong process of God making you like his son. So a disciple is a student. It is someone who has chosen to follow Christ and now as a believer is choosing to learn from Christ, choosing to become more like Christ. So every day there's an advancement in that, should be. And so Jesus is talking to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, and he's taking advantage of this opportunity. This is somebody who's made a radical change in their life, and now they're making a decision to be like Jesus. And and Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, it would be easy to read through that and say, oh, he's just giving a set of rules to live by. I mean, the Beatitudes alone, right? Be easy to do that. But it's not just a set of rules that Jesus is giving. Jesus is giving a way of life. He's giving, if you are mine, if you're going to be like me, this is what your life will look like. It's not really even an option, okay? Follow these rules, don't follow these rules. You know, it's not about checking things off my list. It is, if you are truly a child of God, if you are one of my disciples, this is what your life will look like because this is who I am, Jesus is saying. If you're going to be like me, imitate me, reflect me in your life, this is who you are. It is not just a set of rules. It is a description of those who belong to Christ, who have made Jesus Lord, ruler, director, king of their life. And Jesus said that kind of life will be like salt. You know, in the the ancient world, salt was a preservative. It kept meat from going bad. It adds flavor too, but it primarily was used in this day and time to keep meat from going rotten. And so, you know, meat, fish, whatever form of meat it was, that's what it was used for. It counteracted the natural process of decay and corruption. And so that's one of the purposes of disciples of Jesus Christ. Jesus is implying that in a world that's rotten and corrupt because of sin, his disciples should be people who stand against that by the way they live and by the way they speak. So we should counteract the corruption, the decay in our world through our lives and our actions, our words. We're to be different, as distinctive as salt is from rottenness. Jesus also said this in Matthew 5, 14. He said, you are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. Now think about what Jesus does not say. He doesn't say here, let your light shine so that people will hear your personal testimony or listen to your great preaching or so that you'll get fame or notoriety. Here's what he does say. Two verses later, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works, your good, and give glory to your Father in heaven. Talking about light, Jesus is speaking about lives, not just words. He's talking about who we are. And here's an important point. Followers of Christ are called to live lives that attract others to Jesus through goodness, mercy, love, compassion, and justice. It's about pointing people to Christ. We're a preservative in our world, counteracting rottenness, displaying the light of who Jesus is through our lives, through our deeds, through our words. The word translated good in Matthew 5.16 is important. It also means beautiful. It is, it is the idea, it's not just being morally upright. It is that, but it is doing it. And in doing that, it's beauty that attracts. 
It's beauty that attracts. So my, my moral uprightness, my goodness actually attracts people to Jesus. That's the idea there. So I'm being good. It's different than Galatians 5.22. Both carry similar meanings. But the point is, is that okay, you put those two things together. It's moral uprightness. Both of those have that in common. It's who I am on the inside. I perform acts of kindness, acts of goodness. And in doing so, I'm attracting people to Jesus. That's what I'm doing. That's my point. That's my purpose in life. That's my mission in life. That's what goodness is all about. God called Israel to be a light to the nations. Isaiah. 51.4, and this included uh, the quality of their lives as a society, uh, you know, and this idea of light, it has this strong ethical and social meaning. There's a purpose behind this. We see Isaiah combining light and righteousness, justice, all of these things we see as a part of the character of God and how it should be reflected in his people. Light shines from people committed to compassion and justice. Look at Isaiah 58, verses 6 through 8 and verse 10. Isn't the fast I choose to break the chains of wickedness, to untie the ropes of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to tear off every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the poor and homeless into your house, to clothe the naked when you see him, and not to ignore your own flesh and blood? Then your light will appear like the dawn. Light associated with justice, with goodness, with kindness, um, you know, taking care of those who are oppressed. Then your light will appear like the dawn and your recovery will come quickly. Your righteousness will go before you and the Lord's glory will be your rear guard. And if you, verse 10, if you offer yourself to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted one, then your light will shine in the darkness and your night will be like noonday. So the light of compassion, the light of justice, the light of uh, actual practical care for those who are in need. This reflects the light of God's presence, of who he is, his glory among his people. That's the point here, and that should be the case with us. This light is, is what you would call missionary attractive. It's attracting people to the one and only true God. Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 3, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord shines over you. For look, darkness covers the earth, and total darkness the peoples. But the Lord will shine over you, and his glory will appear over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your radiance. So when God's people live in a way that models the goodness of God, the character of God, others will bring, that's going to bring others to see the truth about who God is. They're going to, they're going to catch a glimpse of who he is through our lives, through our actions. And this ties in perfectly with what Jesus said about letting our light shine. What's the purpose? So that they will see your good works and you will glorify the Father in heaven. You're, we're pointing people to him. We're bringing glory to God. And he is a, a God who cares for the weak, who defends the defenseless, who helps the helpless, who defends the orphan and the widow. This is who God is, and so this is who we are called to be. You know, we talk about good works, and we tend to shy away from emphasizing good works because we don't want to be accused of, of promoting a works-based salvation. We know that we are justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace. It's nothing that we do. There's nothing that we can do on our own to earn salvation. We know that. It's the doctrine of justification. God justifies us. It's based on the work of Jesus Christ, what he did on the cross. Nothing that I have or could ever do. But we can't forget that God saved us and set us apart for good works. You know, we can't just ignore good works altogether. You know, people point to James and say, James is all about works. Paul was all about grace, but that is not the case. As a matter of fact, Paul talked about this. 
And, and the point is, is that we are saved by God's grace in order to live transformed lives in which doing good is a key part. We're not saved by good works, but we're saved to live a life where good works is a key aspect of that. Paul puts these truths side by side in, Ephes- side by side in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. I, I just quoted part of that. We quote those two verses a lot. But we don't often put them together with the next verse, verse 10. For we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we may walk in them. We should walk in them. Yes, we're saved by grace. It's not by our own works so that we can't boast. But don't forget, we're saved, created in Christ for good works. You know, God saves us for a lot of reasons, for his glory, because he loves us. He wants us to experience a relationship with him. He wants us to spend eternity with him. But don't forget one of the reasons God created us in the first place, created man in the first place, was to do good works, to manage his creation, to to be in his image and to display his image. Paul does the same thing in his letter to Titus, in Titus 3, 4 through 8. But when the goodness of God and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. Through the washing of the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that having been justified by grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God might be careful to devote themselves to what? To good works. You've been saved by grace. You've been justified. It's all about Jesus, but you're saved for good works. You're set apart for good works. These are good and profitable for everyone, he says. So listen, we got to be crystal clear about the fact that we're not saved by works, but we also have to be crystal clear about the fact that God expects us to perform good works once we're saved, that's one of the ways that we point people to Jesus. So why should goodness become an important part of our lives is this flavor of spiritual fruit? Well, one reason is that it reflects the nature of the gospel. It reflects the nature of the gospel, the dynamic of the cross and the resurrection. Romans 12, 21, Paul says, Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. He's echoing exactly what Jesus did on the cross. Even the crucifixion itself was an evil act, a horrid act. Sin, death. Jesus overcame that with the the greatest act of all time. And his goodness, his mercy, his grace, through that act of sacrifice, all characteristics of goodness. He overcame sin and death. The cross is the ultimate expression of the goodness of God, and, and, and the resurrection proves the victory over sin and death. Bottom line, God's goodness overcomes evil. Jesus overcame evil, death. And that's the ultimate whole story of the Bible. It's the heart of the gospel. It's our hope for the future beyond the corruption and the decay of life, the evil that exists. It is our hope. It is our future. So when we respond to the evil in the world by acting in goodness and kindness, which do go together, we are not only bearing the supernatural fruit of the Spirit of God in us, we are living in the power of the cross and and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're living with resurrection power. We're living in the power of the Holy Spirit, and we're anticipating when we live in goodness, 
We are anticipating the final act of goodness when Jesus returns and takes us home to be with him. And our goal is to bring people with us, to point people to Jesus so they can experience the same salvation that we've experienced. The cross and the resurrection are not only examples of God's goodness. Hear this. They are the source and the model for any and all goodness that you and I can do as Christians. The cross of Jesus Christ, the resurrection, the only reason that we can be good at all, can't be good enough to earn salvation. Our good works are filthy rags. Our righteousness is filthy rags when we're lost in sin. Anything we do in our own power and strength is, is really worthless from a kingdom perspective. The only way we can be good, the only way we can display the goodness of God, moral excellence that's shown in good works, beauty that attracts people to Jesus, the only way that's possible is because Jesus took on all of our filth, all of our sin on the cross. He paid the price for our sins. He took on the wrath of God so that we wouldn't have to. And then thank God, praise God, three days later, he arose from the dead so that you and I could live for all of eternity. And it's because of that, it's because of the power of the Holy Spirit that now takes up residence in our life as a result of that, that you and I can perform good works that reflect the character of God. We can become like Jesus to a lost and dying world. You want to know why the fruit of the Spirit is important? Because people are dying and going to hell. And it is our responsibility to point them to the life-saving person of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, his resurrection. Goodness reflects that. Kindness reflects that. Patience, joy, love, all of those things reflect that. And God gives us a part in that work. So I'll leave you with this. Do what is good. Do what is right. And then let God take responsibility for the consequences. It may cost you something. It may cost you comfort. It may cost you convenience. And listen, it could cost you your life. If persecution becomes a reality in this country, as it is around the world, it could cost you everything. But living for the Lord, he gave his life. We should be willing to give him everything. Do what's right. Do what is good and let God take care of the consequences. Because if you are his, you are safe in his hands. But here's the thing, you've got to be his. And if you're here today and you don't know him as Lord and Savior, then you're not safe. You can't be good on your own, but he can make you good. He can save your life. That death on the cross that I just talked about, that resurrection, it was for you. It was for all of us. For those who will accept him, we can become a part of his family. And we can begin that process of sanctification. You're saved the minute you accept Christ, but each day becoming more like him. But you've got to accept him. For those of us who belong to him, we should evaluate every flavor of fruit where do we need to improve? Where do we need to allow God to work more in our lives? Where do we need to, to, to hunker down and bear down in the area of spiritual disciplines? What are the areas that we're weak? Where are the areas that we're strong? How can we continue to improve? How can we show the goodness of God every day in our lives? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. Thank you for Jesus, your death, your payment for sin, your resurrection, so that we can now live in power and freedom from sin. And Lord, I pray that if there's somebody here today or at home who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, that they would accept right now that gift that you offer. We have all sinned and fallen short of your glory. We need salvation. 
And Lord, I pray that if there's someone who hasn't received it, that they would come during this time of invitation and allow me to share with them how to make that decision if they don't understand. Lord, for those of us who know you, let us evaluate our lives. Holy Spirit, search down deep. What are the areas where we are falling short in the air of goodness, in the flavor of goodness? What are the things that we need to be doing in our lives, the characteristics that we need to be displaying that are characteristics of your goodness? What are the things that we should be doing that we're not doing? Lord, show us. Lord, may we submit to you and allow you to work in and through us. And may the, the fruit on the inside, your presence, your spirit, may it flow out of us in very real and clear, clear crystal ways that point back to you. Lord, may we be your ambassadors. May we be your missionaries in our world. And thank you for letting us be a part of that. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand for our time of commitment?